Well, how about that baptism oh, man, this did you morning? Avonlea, I've known uh, all of her life, and to see her come out of that water with her smile from like ear to ear, man, there's like just joy exploding in that space. It is so cool. And my prayer is, is that every single one of us would have that kind of joy as we talk and speak and follow Jesus in our life in that space. And not only was that baptism pretty cool because of Avonlea, but also uh, Colin is, is one of my dear friends, and to be able to watch him baptize his daughter, and, and not only to be like the star, I mean, look at that face, right? The star of our, of our uh, series here, but also he is a man that emulates uh, what we've been talking about these last five weeks as we have been in this man-to-man uh, series. And so uh, before we dive into that, I want to welcome all of you joining us online uh, on Facebook, YouTube, Crossroads Live, wherever you may be, as well as everyone here. If you're new with us and we haven't had the privilege of meeting, my name is Matt Manning and I am the senior pastor uh, here at Crossroads Church. And we have been uh, for the past five weeks in this series called Man to Man. And so if this is your first time here, at Crossroads, you're joining us for the first time online, you're kind of coming in at the end of a movie, but we'll catch you up uh, in through, through this. But over these last five weeks, we've been looking really at five values uh, that make up a definition of what, uh, what true authentic masculinity is all about. And if you've been a part of this series and you've made it to this point, <clears throat> I'm assuming that you're probably a lot like me and that you have a bit of anxiety away the, the way our society, our culture handles masculinity, the way that it portrays masculinity the way that masculinity is seen, the way that masculinity is practiced in our culture and in our society. That we live in a society that is deeply polarized right now that pits men against women. When we look towards like the entertainment industry for maybe a model of masculinity, what we either get is is someone like this sniveling kind of coward, refuses to grow up kind of guy, or on the other end of the spectrum, what's given to us is this like toxic, macho, uh, womanizer type of person. Either side of that things, we look at it and there's, there's just a feeling that that's not really what what a real man is all about. That we need a vision to live to as men. That we need a vision that we can teach our boys that we can call them to. We need a vision that our girls would be proud of. We need a vision of masculinity that doesn't lead us down roads of chaos and destruction, but rather leads to flourishing in this world. And so if you've been here throughout this series, the last couple of weeks, we've been building this vision, like I said, around five values when it comes to authentic manhood or, or authentic masculinity. And so if you've if this is your first time here at Crossroads, this will be like catching you up in the movie. If you've been here, I'm just wanting to give them to you one more time, all right? And so value number one that we looked at week one is this, is that a real man rejects passivity. And in week one, what we discovered is that God creates every man with, with this kind of this natural aggressiveness to us. And that this natural aggressiveness obviously is supposed to be used in such a way that when we are called to initiate, that we step up. But the problem that we've seen throughout the history of the world is that when we are called to initiate, whether that be in the family, in the home, in our communities, rather than stepping up, oftentimes we shrink back as men. We sink back into the shadows. And that as we saw in week one is that a real man, a real man rejects that kind of passivity in his life and steps out of the shadows into what he's called to do. Week two, we looked at value number two, which is a real man accepts responsibility. That every man has three responsibilities to himself, to his family, and ultimately to his work. And the way that we order those priorities says a lot about us in the way that we see ourselves as men. Week three, we looked at a, a, a real man leads courageously. That from the very beginning pages of scripture, we're told, and, and, and what's taught to us is that men were created, designed, uniquely designed to lead. And that this leadership that we're to characterize is one of, of sacrifice, 
and service and ultimately courage. Then if you were here with us last week, we looked at value number four, which is a real man lives wisely. And as we looked at this last week, we opened up and we saw in the scriptures that the Bible actually shows us this dirty little secret of ours. And that is, is that every man has this curious fascination with folly, that we have this curious attraction to foolishness, and that oftentimes when we engage in that foolishness, it leads us down roads of ruin and destruction, and a real man realizes this and sets his path on the way of wisdom. And that a real man understands that really when it comes to the path of wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of that wisdom. Today we're going to dive into value number five, and we're going to look at a real man lives for the greater reward, God's reward. And I want to begin today really by sharing a story about it myself that kind of helps bring us into where we're going today. 25 years ago or so, when I was 16 years old, I had this big dream of playing in the NHL, the National Hockey League. And that was my dream. I wanted to play for the hometown Colorado Avs. I wanted to be on that team. That was like the dream for me. Now, while I was in junior hockey, I had a goal, and that goal was to win the state championship here in Colorado. And that goal motivated me and drived me to achieve things in this world. And, and I worked hard. I worked tirelessly at becoming a good hockey player. I would wake up oftentimes at five in the morning to go to practice. That I would uh, spend hours in the garage stick handling a ball. That my dad like rigged up this system with like a weight, a rope, and a stick that we would roll up and down in order to strengthen our forearms so that our shot would be better. And all of that work paid off when I became a pretty decent hockey player. That one year I led the league in scoring, proving that I could put the puck in the back of the net. The next year, I actually led the league in penalty minutes, proving that I was tough or maybe something like that. For many years, I actually uh, was captain of my hockey teams. But when I was 16 years old, I ended up on this amazing team and we won the state championship. And I can vividly remember some 25 years later, the, the sound of the, of the final horn the at the old Nevada Ice Center and the cheers from the crowd. I can remember throwing our gloves and our sticks and our helmets up in the air and rising over to our goalie and dogpiling on our goalie in celebration. I can remember going through the line, shaking the hands of the other team as you do in hockey. I can remember standing along the goal line, hearing our team named as we celebrated being the state champs. And as vividly as I can remember all of that, even more so, I remember what it felt like to be the best to be at the top of of what I thought was, was like the hockey world at the time. And I can even remember, even before the trophies were passed out, thinking, is this it? Is this all that there is? Like, shouldn't the satisfaction be, be more? Shouldn't the satisfaction be deeper? Shouldn't there be something else to this? It was, it was such a fleeting feeling within moments of all of this happening. Men, throughout the history of time, we have set our sights on various awards, rewards. Things like wealth and success, power, influence, fame, glory. And those targets have have motivated great effort from us. We have achieved. But the truth of the matter is, if, if we're truly being honest with ourselves, There is nothing quite so sad in this world. There's nothing quite so sad in this world as a great sacrifice in pursuit of a goal that proves to be pointless when we get it. There's nothing quite so sad in this world when we find a treasure 
and realize that it's worthless when we get it. Sadly, when we open the pages of Scripture, the very beginning of Scripture, we meet Adam. And over the course of this series, we've been tracking with Adam. We've been seeing his life. We've seen his faults as he walks down his version of masculinity. And as we've watched Adam, we see, at least in part, that this is part of his story. That we watch as he, as he reaches for the glory for himself and his, and his willingness to do just about anything in, in order to get that glory for himself, even rebelling against God. That we see this play out, and it surprises us a little bit, doesn't it? And maybe it really shouldn't surprise us that us humans seek our own glory. That we humans, after our, are glorious beings. The Bible's so clear on this. From the very beginning of Scripture, from the very first page of Scripture, we're taught that men and women, that we are made in the image, we are made in the very likeness of God himself. That we, from this one truth, we are set apart from every other creature on this planet. I mean, God just, just, just spoke us into existence in order that we might manifest his, his, his majesty and his worth to the entire world through us. It was Jesus who said that we're infinitely more valuable than the birds of the air. King David in the Psalms wrote that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we are designed and created to look up to the sky and ask, God, who is it that we are? Why is it that you are so mindful of us? What is it about us that you find so important that you made us and crowned us with honor and glory and put us over this entire place? It's like that great scene in the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know if you've seen Prince Caspian in the movie or, or read the book. But Troll Hunter in this scene says these words, that Narnia was never right except when a son of Adam was king. This is not man's country, but it is a country for men to be king of. See, Adam's issue wasn't that he had a hunger for glory. His issue is that he failed to recognize the one whom ultimately made his, us glorious. And in our current day, hear me men on this, in our current day, we have gone wild searching for substitutes. That glory is a, is a common reward that we seek because we recognize that glory is in our blood. And when you add to that how our society, more than ever before, sees that, that the now is all that there is. Like we recalibrate every single day in order to, to live for the now with nothing for tomorrow. I mean, if we just think about that, if all that we have in this life, if, if this life is all that we have, then we better go for broke when it comes to claiming as much glory as we can. The hunger for glory, if it's going to be satisfied, must be satisfied on this earth, which means it's all up to you. And if this is your reality, if this is the way that you see the world, then let's just be honest. People are immaterial, aren't they? And cutting corners, it's just small beans to get ahead in this world because this is a dog-eat-dog -dog kind of world. And if that's really, truly our perspective on life, then who would ever have time to live out these qualities of being a real man? See, glory is just one example, but I could paint this picture time and time again similarly for, for wealth and success, for power, for fame, for influence. The rewards that us men, that we chase time and time again in our lives that really prove to be no reward at all. 
And for us as men, we need something to live for. We need a challenge to face. We need a cause to pursue. And in our world, there are lots of causes claiming to be worthy. But you and I, we have to realize that we are designed for a higher reward. That is, that is in our DNA, that we are created, that we are wired for a higher calling. That a real man lives for the greater reward. And when we open the pages of the New Testament, we see how clear this is in the teachings. We have someone like the Apostle Paul who's sitting down and writing to the church in Philippi. And as he's writing to the church in Philippi in chapter 3, he writes these words about himself. He says this, I press on toward the goal for the prize, the reward of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm living my life, and there's this upward calling, there's this goal, there's this reward that's up here that I'm living for. Not just the things of this world, but I'm living in that direction. Then in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews says the most fascinating thing about Moses. Here's what he writes. He says, he, Moses, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, we have to realize that during this time, Egypt was like a superpower. Like they were flooding with wealth. And something in Moses saw the wealth of Egypt, and he said, it pales in comparison to the reward that's being promised to me up there. Now, honestly, as we've walked through these last four weeks of this series and looked at these four values, these first four values of being a real man, it could easily be interpreted that being a real man is only work all the time. Full of toil with no joy, no, no satisfaction, no adventure, burdensome and suffocating. But masculinity can only be interpreted that way if we do not understand the greater reward. Which is why looking toward Jesus is so important for us. That as we've been down this path, we've, we've seen every week the path that Adam sets for us. But then when we turn to Jesus, we see that there's a different path of masculinity. With with different outcomes, a different destiny, and ultimately a totally different reward. That when we open the Gospels of Jesus, we see what authentic manhood actually looks like. We see Jesus in the Gospels where his soul, where, he, where he actually his soul rejects and resists the seductive glory that Adam tried to grab for himself. Maybe, you, maybe you're familiar with the story. It's the story of Jesus' temptations. This is where it happens that Satan takes Jesus up on top of this mountain and he shows Jesus the world. And he says, look out at all the world. You can have all the glory of this world if you're just willing to bow down and to worship me. Jesus, you can have all of this. You can skip the suffering. You can skip the pain. You can skip the cross. You can have all the glory. That's what you're looking for, right? You can have all the glory of this world if you just bow down and worship me. And in that moment, Jesus embraces the calling of manhood as difficult as it is. And instead of walking down the path with Adam, we see Jesus choose a different path. And the question that every single one of us want to ask is this, is Jesus, like, why did you do it? What was your motivation? What kept you going? Nobody does anything for nothing, Jesus. Jesus, why did you do it? And the simple answer is because he knew the greater reward to come. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. 
whether that be a book or a tablet or on a phone. If you have a Bible, Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to be. Now, as you turn there, let me kind of give you some background and the setup of where we're going. That in Hebrews chapter 11, we have this celebration of faith of the Old Testament, of the Old Testament saints, all right? And these saints, though they are dead, are still speaking to us even today. That's the point of the author. That these saints, even though they are dead and passed away, like they are dead, 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 they still speak to us even today. That they've run the race of life, they've finished the race, and now their stories remain as a living witness or testimony to the value of living by faith, of seeking a reward greater than anything that this world has to offer. And so as we turn to Hebrews chapter 12, in light of these Old Testament saints, the writer pictures us running our own race, and he says this, that therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking up to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That this verse is so important. And the reason that it's so important is because every man needs to have this kind of perspective. That life is a marathon, not a hundred-yard dash. And the race is long. And there are going to be moments where it feels like you're climbing up hills and mountains where your muscles are screaming, we can't do it, we're not going to make it. We're not going to, we're not going to make it to the finish line. And it's in that moment, that moment, where our greatest temptation, men, is to coast, is to drift, to sit down, to settle for a lesser reward. And what the author desperately wants us to see is that Jesus ran the race too. And his race was 33 years long. And his race ended in the most despising and heartbroken way. That it ended with opposition and suffering. It ended with the horrific torture of the cross and the shame that came alongside that kind of death. And as Jesus ran his marathon, in that last mile of his marathon, he ran it with nails in his hands and nails in his feet and a spear in his side and a crown of thorns on his head. And we look back on that moment and we realize that it's the greatest act in human history ever performed in the history of the world because he was dying for our sins, not his own. And the author says that Jesus ran and that the reason that Jesus ran, the motivation of his running was because there was a joy, a reward that was set before him. And then that joy superseded the cross and the suffering and the pain and the shame of this life. And now that Jesus, he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, which is just the Bible's way of saying that Jesus is king, that's what the verse is saying there, is that Jesus is king, and that Jesus, as the king, faced whatever this life threw at him, the hardships that this life, and he endured it all, knowing that one day he would have his great reward, that he would be in the presence of his father once again, and that you and I, and the person that you're sitting next to, and the family that lives across the street from you, and the coworker that, that's in the cubicle beside you, 
that every single person, that there would be a way, that everybody would have a way because of Jesus to be there too in the presence of the Father. Listen, men, we were created by the King. And this King, this same King, calls us into service, just like the knights of old, where we reject passivity in order, in order to embrace true manhood where we accept the responsibility and lead courageously and live wisely. And it would only make sense that we would live and look forward toward a greater reward of one day being in the presence of our King and seeing him smile as he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That you've lived a life, you have a legacy, a name, a reputation that's to be admired that your life will live on as an example to those who follow you. You ran the race and finished, well done. Come sit by me and rest. That's our reward, being in the presence, knowing that he is pleased with us. It's why the writer writes in verse one, lay aside then every, every sin and every weight that so closely clings to us and let us run with endurance. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking toward Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. In other words, what the writer is saying is, is you know the great reward, that you know the reward is, is one day being with your Savior in heaven and him smiling upon you and saying, good job, well done. You know what that reward looks like. You know the joy. So get serious about the race. Get serious about the race that you're running. Throw off everything that slows you down. Get rid of the things that encumber you as you run. This verse I've tried to impress upon my kids as a dad because if we get it, it makes a radical difference in our life. See, the race of life is not run well by setting the standard so low, by asking what's against the rules, what's sin, what's not sin, how far can I go without actually getting in trouble? All of those questions, a total waste of time. That if we're running a race, the questions that we're asking is when it comes to this race, how am I thinking and eating? How am I dressing in order to run the race well? Am I doing the things that, that are required of me to embrace manhood? Am I doing the things that, that lead to greater faith and greater love, greater purity, greater courage, greater wisdom in my life? Does what I'm doing help me run the race that's before me? It's why the author points us to Jesus saying that he's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. That he's given us the foundation of our faith from start to finish. And if we ever find ourselves, if we ever find ourselves in this place going, I, I don't know how to run. I don't know what to let go of. I don't know what to focus on. The author says, you, you turn your eyes to Jesus. That he's given you a, a perfect model of what it means to be an authentic man. That he's given you a perfect model of what it looks like to live out this faith from start to finish. That he trusted his father from the very beginning to the very end in his earthly race so that the God who began a good work in you that you would have confidence that that same God is going to complete it because of who Jesus is, that he's going to complete it through Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, that Jesus is running alongside us in this race. And if that didn't give us enough confidence, 
The author goes on, and he says, not only is Jesus running with you in this race, but that you have a whole crowd of people on the track beside you cheering you on. Now remember the setup to these verses. The setup to this chapter is Hebrews chapter 11, where the author looks at these Old Testament saints, and though they are dead, that they're still speaking to us today. And not only are they speaking to us, but they're actually, they're actually cheering you on. Since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us run. See, as you, as you run the race, there is this big, dense crowd of saints pressing in on the track. And these saints are, are people from Hebrews chapter 11, and they're people, Christians, who have finished the race. They've already finished the race before us, and they finished the race, they circled back around, and now they're pressing into the crowd alongside the route that we're running, and they're cheering. And I love the picture that this paints for us so vividly in the scriptures. How many of you have ever run the boulder boulder? Online, you can just pound a heart, but raise your hand in house if you've ever run. Yeah, quite a few of you, quite a few of you. Well, for the last six years, I've run the boulder boulder. And if you've never run the Boulder Boulder, let me kind of tell you what it's about. It's a 10K race, that's 6.2 miles, and it kind of weaves through the streets of Boulder. Now at mile five, you're cruising down iconic Pearl Street. You kind of make a quick jaunt over to Walnut, and then you make this right onto Folsom Street. And as soon as you get to Folsom Street, you can see Folsom Field. Now the reason that that's important is because part what makes the Boulder Boulder so cool is that you actually finish the race in the football stadium. Like you run the last quarter mile in the football stadium and that's where you finish the race. And as you make that right turn onto Folsom Street, everybody who's running, everybody who's tired, even though there's like three quarters of a mile left in the race, you see that field and you get a little bounce in your step and everybody pushes a little bit harder. But anybody who's ever run that race before knows that the most brutal part of the race is getting into the stadium. Because right before you enter into the stadium, you have to climb this hill that is just devastating. I mean, people go from a run to a slow walk. Others are like hurling on the side. Some people sit down. They're not sure if they're going to be able to finish. But if you can fight through the hill, then you make it into the stadium. And as you enter into that stadium for the last quarter mile, you enter into a stadium full of 30,000 people cheering you on. And it's just enough for you to hit the afterburners and make it to the finish line. See, I love that visual because the witnesses of Hebrews chapter 11, they've finished the race. They've wrapped back around and they've gathered along the sideways, sidelines and they number in the millions and they hold out their wounds with their joys and their hands and they're giving you the best high fives that you've ever gotten and they're saying, you can do it. You keep going. You keep going. You got it. You got this. And in those moments... When being a man is difficult and hard and feels like it's all work and all toil. It's in those moments where, where it feels like being a man is, is climbing this hill and it's so exhausting and demoralizing. And your muscles are screaming. You can't do it. You're not going to make it. And you look around and you see other men bailing out for lesser rewards. It's in that moment that you hear the roar of the crowd chanting, what lies ahead, come on, what lies ahead is indescribable. Keep going, you can do it, we finished, you can too. And we get to the finish line and our hearts fill with joy because there's our savior standing with his arms open, 
a smile on his face and he greets us with a well done. You've completed this race of life. And in that moment, the joy fills our hearts because we'll look back on our lives and all of the joys and all the hardships in that moment, we'll know that it's totally worth it now that we're in his presence and that he's in ours. So as we wrap up this series, here's my question to you. Is what reward are you chasing in this life? There's a moment in Jesus' life where he actually teaches about rewards. He's teaching about the rewards of heaven and the rewards of earth, and, and he makes it a point as he's teaching this lesson to point out a few guys who are, who are pursuing rewards like reputation and wealth and status, all for the sake of increasing their own sense of security. And as Jesus wraps up the lesson, he says one of the most sobering things that we find anywhere in the New Testament. He says, truly I tell you on this day that those guys, those men, they received their reward in full. And what Jesus was saying in this moment is when they die, they'll find that there is nothing for them from God because they were never reconciled to God. That there will be no heavenly reward for them because there will be no heaven for them. See, the greatest problem, the greatest problem that we face, whether you're a man or a woman here today, that needs to be addressed, that oftentimes we ignore our entire life is relational. The most important challenge is not financial, it's not professional, it's not structural, it's not sensational. The central dilemma that every single one of us face is relational. And if you don't address the humanly impossible dilemma of getting right with God, then nothing, nothing that you devote your life to in this world will matter. It'll be like you're a 16 year old kid holding a trophy wondering if this is it. Shouldn't there be more? And maybe you haven't really ever cared about this until now. You were meant to live for a greater reward. That Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins so that you could be reconciled to God. And so that you could be with him and he with you. And so what I'm gonna do in closing this up is I'm gonna pray. But if that's you, and God's whispering to your heart, I wanna encourage you to take a moment while I pray to simply text the word Jesus to 720-513-1933. We care about you. We care about your relationship with God. And if you text that number, you'll speak to someone who's genuinely interested, genuinely interested in hearing about where you're at with all of this. Will you pray with me? Father, we are in your presence this morning, knowing that you're here with us. 
And Lord, we, we look at the great calling that you've placed on lives of men. Lord, this calling to, to live up to, to model our lives after Jesus in a way that brings flourishing into this world. And God, our heart is, is to be those type of men. Our heart is, is, is to see you and to live for the greater reward that is to come, to be in your presence physically and fully, to be in your presence and for you to be in ours. And so, Lord, we look forward to that day. Father, I pray for those moments, Lord, that as we live as a man, in those moments where it feels like it's too hard, where we want to coast, where we want to drift, that in those moments, Lord, that we would remind ourselves that you're running right next to us. God, help us in that space. Lord, help our ears be able to hear the screams of the crowd of those who've gone on before us, cheering us on, saying, don't give up, don't coast, keep going, you can do it. God, let us hear those. And let us give, let that give us the encouragement that we need to fight through to the very end. And Father, I pray for those here, Lord, who have maybe never thought about these things, that maybe today as they hear the whisper in their soul that they would take the bold step of simply texting your name to that number to begin a great and awesome and adventurous journey with you. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in your son Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. That we come together each and every week and one of the things that we do is celebrate communion. And it's in these moments that we're reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus made the author and the perfecter of our faith who endured the cross where his body was broken and his blood was spilt, taking on the shame of that kind of death so that we would have life. And so today we remember and we celebrate Jesus' body being broken for the forgiveness of our sins and so we eat together. And we celebrate the blood being spilt on our behalf, the blood that gives us life, and so we do so together. Anytime we gather, we assume that there's moments where you may need prayer. And so if you're here today and you need prayer in-house, you can make your way over to the banner. We'll have people there who would love to pray for you. Online, you can just click the button. We'll pray with you there as well. But we're going to enter into a time of worship through singing where we lift our voices in our hands in celebration of our good Lord and Savior, our King, Jesus. Will you join with us?